It is certainly a great privilege to be back here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for always welcoming us so warmly whenever we get to be here. Um, and more than that, being people who welcome the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Let me pray for us. God, we come to you this morning. Uh, we have worshipped you because our hearts overflow with gratitude for all that you've done for us. We gather because these are your people. These are your children. And where we gather, you promise you are there. You promise you are with us. You promise you walk with us. So this morning, we just pray for your spirit to come. Be with us. Speak to us in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, musicians. That was beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. What a joy. So, so since I was here last, um, the name has changed, which is amazing. Uh, we also, as a family, my family, we became citizens of this country since I was here last. Yeah. It was a very special experience, and I am so, so, so grateful to God for the journey he's brought us on. We've been here now for 11 years. And uh, in some ways, that is us saying, God, you've planted us here. You've given us a home, and I'm really, really grateful. So I want to read to you from Daniel, the book of Daniel, chapter 1, verse 1 to 20. It's a bit lengthy, so stick with me. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded um, Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people uh, of Israel, both the royal family and of nobility, four youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food uh, that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Mishael, Azariah, um, uh, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he, he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Um, ten, and the chief of the eunuchs said to, uh, sorry, uh, verse 10, and the chief eunuch said to, David, uh, to Daniel, um, I fear, my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the stewards whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food 
um, be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter. He tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance, fatter in the flesh than all the youths that ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine and gave them vegetables. Every child's dream. As for, the, as for these youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them into Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among them none was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians, the enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Well done. You made it through. This story is beautiful. Daniel, uh, uh, it's also heartbreaking. Daniel's ripped from his his land. Uh, He he and his buddies are taken away. And in some ways... Um, we're going to just look at what happens with them and why this is so significant. So we sang this morning this really beautiful song, um, and it goes along with one of these sayings that has uh, been very popular in the church, which, which if I said this, God is good, and all the time, you know it. See, you've heard it. You sang it, you understand it. But verse 2 still says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand. But God is good? And all the time? But God gave his king, his people, his children into the enemy's hands. Can you see the problem? We have to sit with that problem. We have to sit in that moment and we have to be able to reconcile what's going on. Because if you're like me and you've inherited some Christian slogans, which are beautiful, and I want to diminish them, you also would be like me in that tomorrow morning or Tuesday morning when you go back to work, you hit some sort of a roadblock that makes you go, wait a minute. God is good all the time. doesn't really look the way I thought it would look. When we see a tag on a social media post, hashtag blessed, what do you imagine? You imagine love, a couple in love on honeymoon. You imagine somebody sitting with a beautiful sunset. You imagine just, just really, really amazing things that God gives us. And it's absolutely true. I'm not knocking that. But what, what would you put to the post of the picture when you lose a job that you really need? Is it still hashtag blessed? Or is it still hashtag God is good all the time? See, I enjoy magnificent sunsets and I love my wife who's not here right now and, and she's busy training. Um, but I have, to, I have to ask myself, what if any of those things that I consider success or beauty or blessedness, what if there is something that precludes me from being able to experience that? I don't know the pain that you've gone through in your life. I'm sure that we could sit for hours and talk about that. But 
My, uh, like I said, my wife's away for a month. She had to go train for her job. She's been sent away. I have not lost her. She's alive. We love each other. She's with us. But she's away for a month. And it's excruciating. I can only imagine what it must be like to lose the one you love. Or for them to leave you. For whatever reason. Hashtag blessed. <laughs> the question is this. What if I am precluded by my circumstance from experiencing the things that are determined as blessed or God's goodness in our world? What if I can't experience a sunset because I have a dingy, dark basement apartment and I don't see any light? <laughs> What if I've never been able to get married and that's what I've considered is the blessed life or the, the happy life or that which God has for me? When we consider that conundrum, that problem, we are faced with three possibilities. It should be on screen. First, that God is not good or that there are times where he's kind of caught sleeping and some things slip through the cracks. Or that God is good to some, but not to others, not all the time. Or that God's goodness might not look the way we expect it to look. In other words, what we believe the vision of God's goodness might be is probably influenced by a number of different things, and, and I'm going to be a little honest as, as a pastor, sometimes pastors or the church influences what the good life is supposed to look like, and it's actually a little deceiving for their sheep, for their people. Because we expect that things will go well if I, if I follow God, and that everything will be fixed. In other words, we define God's blessedness, His kindness, basically, simply, when we are healthy, when we are wealthy, when we are comfortable, and when we are happy. Some of you have faced significant obstacles, challenges in your life, more than I ever will, and, and, and some, I've faced some things that you might never uh, need to face. And the question we have to ask is, what do we do with the goodness of God in moments of my life when what is going on conflicts with the vision I have of what the goodness of God is supposed to look like? We have defined God's goodness in ways that are not universally experienced by all. I love family. I love family values. I think family values are so powerful and so true and so good. And yet, we have defined the goodness of God in an ultimate way when it comes to families so that people who might never be able to have a family, get married, or have kids, feel completely excluded from the goodness and kindness of God. So we have to ask, well, what does God's goodness and kindness look like for people who can't experience things that we have defined as the ultimate blessing of God? 
So here's a good litmus test. If the good news is really good news, it must, and I say that as strongly as I can, it must be good news for all people, not just for some. It has to be good news for all people. I, had a, I heard a very wise priest, um, Catholic priest, once define this difference between a problem and a dilemma. And we often, when we face challenges or struggles or problems, we jump into them like we must fix them. Like, we, like we're supposed to do something to get through them to solve the problem and move on. And that's true. But we often misdiagnose dilemmas as problems. And he says, dilemmas you can't fix. You're just stuck with them. You have to sit with them and they're difficult. They're difficult because most of the time we try to fix them and we can't. And then we feel like we're failing or God's not kind or good. See, with problems, we can work on problems, but dilemmas, they work on us. And that's not nice. <laughs> but this dilemma of suffering and struggle and the goodness of God and where is it and where is God? I don't know if you ever ask it. I'm sure you never ask those questions. I do. We sit in those dilemmas and God wants to meet us in those things. And so today I want to look at Daniel very, very briefly, this, this particular text, and just not give you uh, an answer to the problems or a solution to the problem of pain and suffering. There are amazing books that you can read on that. All I want to do today is give you a couple of handles on how to be in a dilemma, how to live within this place where we can't quite make sense of everything. So in the text, we see a few things happening. The Lord allows them to be taken captive. That brings so many questions. Why God? Why them? Why now? What did they do wrong? How did they end up in this horrible situation? Anyway, they chose some of the finest young men. So many questions again. What makes these fine young men fine young men? What, what is it? Why did they choose them? What, what is it that makes a good young man a good specimen? Or... Who decides who are fine young men? They were to be trained for three years in the ways of Babylon so that they can be there according to what success is in Babylon. They can be fine young men there. So, they were in Israel. They had a measure of success in Israel. That's why they were chosen. They get moved to Babylon. And in this move... Now they are told, this is what you must do in order to be successful here. And we kind of need you to be successful because else we're just going to get rid of you. So, I'll tell you a story of me coming to New York quickly. I spoke to someone here in New York about coming here as a pastor 12 years ago. And... Most of you have been here longer than I have, born and raised here, so you know much more about this. But the guy I spoke to did something that was very unhelpful for me, but very helpful in what God used it eventually. He, he had me look at 
he had a look at everything I did as a pastor in South Africa to see if I was good at what I did. So we went through a process of him looking at that. Then at the end of that, he said this one phrase, and it absolutely broke me. He said, you're from Africa. Most Americans, most American pastors can't make it in New York City. What makes you think you're going to make it in New York City? And all of a sudden, I felt like I was successful here, successful, however that is supposed to be defined as a pastor. And then coming here, there is a pressure, now I have to perform. Now I have to become something that shows how successful I am in New York City. And I lived with this crushing burden on my shoulders to try to be successful in a certain way. And certainly 12 years has been 12 years of undoing this like expectation that New York has and that this world has on what success is supposed to look like. Then it says, but Daniel, they were trained for three years in Babylon. Then it says, but Daniel says, nope. They said, this is how you're going to become successful. And Daniel said, actually, I can't come under the measures of success that you're telling me. So I want to propose something different. And it says, he found favor and grace and compassion. God's favor was with him as he exercised his conviction, which opposed the conviction of the place of the day. That's a scary thing. Because he could literally have his head chopped off. We might not here in New York get that happen, but we will certainly not do, it would not be easy if we say we're not going to do things the way that our world tells us is successful. But then there's this beautiful text that says, when God take, uh, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and literature and wisdom, and Daniel had favor and compassion, and he had vision, he had the understanding of vision and dreams. And I find it very, very, very interesting that when you either deny yourself something or God takes something away, it's always because he wants to add something to you that you can't quite see or understand just yet. That's happened to me just so many times, and I would be moaning at God, and just like, Wah. and I would be praying my best prosperity gospel prayers. God, you promised. It'll go well with me in the land. Your vats will be overflowing. And it just doesn't seem like that's true. So Daniel decides he's going to use a different kind of currency to pursue success. There are two things that happens in this process that I want to highlight and then want to pray for you. One is, I want you to understand the way that you sit within the dilemmas when the things around you don't make sense compared to what you think God's goodness looks like, is to keep perspective, to find and keep perspective. See, our world measures success in very short increments. And techno technology has affected that deeply. Things must happen quicker and easier. Things must be more comfortable. And I must be happier. Success. And we obviously use technology towards those things. I'm not bashing all technology. I have a dishwasher and I love it. <laughs> but that's not God's success. 
See, there is the immediate and there is the eternal, and we confuse these two very, very often. Because we're told it's the immediate that counts. The good news, one theologian said, was that all this had happened in and through Jesus, that one day it will happen completely and utterly to all creation, and that we humans, every single one of us, whoever we are, can, can be caught up in that transformation here and now. In other words, the one day word, the what will happen eventually is the thing that matters, not the thing that's happening right now, today. Just ask Ron. I spoke to Ron for a few moments this morning. He's getting baptized next week. What an, what an incredible day. Hearing that story was absolutely stunning. And it was 15, 16, 20 years ago, right here, where you encountered God in a very, very specific way, or he encountered you. But it didn't even start 20 years ago. This has not even been a 20-year journey. His grandma was praying for him when he was a kid, when he was five years old. That's a 60-year journey, and next week he's getting baptized. My question is, if you really want to experience the goodness of God, are you okay waiting 60 years? See, Daniel's perspective was, I can't just right now do what you're asking me to do because it would make me look successful to you right now. I need to stay true to what God has called me to. And I know even if you chop my head off, in the end of the day, that's a better place to be. So my wisdom with regards to perspective is this. Do not judge God's kindness towards you in a photograph. A photograph captures a moment it does not tell a story. It does not tell the story from five years old to 65 years old to 75 years old to 100. God's kindness is not discerned in a photograph that you can say, hashtag blessed. Let it play out. Let time go by. In fact, there's a beautiful little snippet at the end of this text that we read. And it said, at the end of time. When they stood before the king. That's three years that went by. At the end of time, the experiment of saying no, of going against the grain, of suffering more than others who were drinking wine and eating meat. The experiment three years later was like, I see something different. Now that was three years. Some of you wait way, way, way longer to see the goodness of God. The blessing that I can be in this land, that I can have in this land, is dependent on my holding on to the convictions that God has given me, even if it costs me, even if it doesn't seem to work right now, even if I don't look successful in the eyes of those around me, but I am going to hold on to the conviction of God. See, we live in a world that's, that we believe is a little like a, a romantic comedy when we watch it. 90 minutes and everything bad happens and everything good happens and it's all fixed at the end. It's a little more like a 60-year journey. And it's not done yet.
keep perspective. God's timing is not our timing. The second thing is know your value. Human beings, human beings, you and I, are always, perpetually, we do it and it is done to us where we judge each other's value by certain criteria. I don't know if this is you, but you might have walked in here and you might have thought, ah, look at that guy, got nice new shoes. Must be doing good. Look at the watch that guy has. Oh, he just got a degree, a doctor. Whatever it is that we choose to use as our measuring stick for value, I want you to understand that according to Scripture, those things mean nothing. Let me rephrase that. They're important as much as they are in obedience to what God wants you to do. They're not important in any measure as much as it relates to how much you are loved, how good God is to you, and what you're worth in this church, in your family, and in society is. We use the salaries we earn. We use the labels we wear. We use our youth. Some, some just genuinely feel like youth is the valuable thing in our day, and so people who are older feel discarded. I'm telling you, I, I am deeply, deeply convinced that the wisdom that is locked up in, the, in, in people who have more years than me is just absolutely gold. The class that you come from, the language you speak, the skills you have. See, they were being put through a three-year process of proving that they are valuable in this new society. Daniel and his mates. Three years to prove themselves valuable. The pressure was to conform to the rules by which they played in order to prove their value. And I don't know about you, but I use, I use you'll see, I use the pulpit as my confessional. I, I day after day, struggle to try to prove how valuable I am in my family, in my, my job, in my church, in Brooklyn. That's why I grew this beard. <laughs> Just kidding. Totally kidding. <laughs> I grew this beard for another reason. I'll tell you about it quickly. My daughter, who was five at the time, begged me, Dad, shave your beard. Dad, shave your beard. Dad, shave your beard. And she begged and begged. And one night, while she was asleep, I didn't tell her I shaved my beard. And I woke up the next morning, and I went to her, and I kissed her, and she woke up. And she said, Dad, what did you do? <laughs> so, so I said, babe, you've been begging me to shave my beard, and I've shaved my beard. So she looked, she's quiet for a moment, she goes, yeah, but that's before I saw your face. <laughs> I'm going to read you a quote quickly of one author who speaks about the life of Job, Right? Here it goes. It is out of the whirlwind whirlwind that Job first hears God say, Who is this that darkens my counsel by words without knowledge? It is out of the absence of God that God makes himself 
present. And it is not just the whirlwind that stands for his absence, not just the storm and the chaos of the world that knocks into a cocked hat all of man's attempts to find God in the world, but God is absent also from all of Job's words about God and from the words of his comforters because they are words without knowledge that obscure the issue of God by trying to define him as present in ways and places where he is not present, to define him as moral order and as best answer man can give to the problem of his life. God is not an answer man can give, God says. God himself does not give answers. He gives himself. Job and his friends looked for answers, and they had many. And at the end of the day, God wasn't in those answers. That's a dilemma. There are no answers to a dilemma. What we need in the struggle when we have questions that we can't answer God, why? Why is this happening? I don't get it. Your promises are different in Scripture. I'm holding on to them, but man, I am tired. God does not give answers as much as He wants to give Himself. That's how we change. Your value and your circumstances, let me, I want you to hear this very, very carefully and remember this for the rest of your days. Your value and your circumstances most of the time do not match. Don't believe that they match. Don't believe that because things are not going well, you are not loved. Don't believe because you're struggling or suffering that God is not looking out for you. Don't believe the lie because that's how Satan went to God in the first place. And that's the lie upon which he based his attack on Job. He's doing great. Take it away from him. Let's see how he does. Job didn't believe the lie. He struggled. He was wrestling in the dilemma. He didn't have the answers. That's true. But in the end, you know what he got at the end? He didn't get more than he had before. He got God himself. It wasn't about restoring his children or his fortune or his or his oxen and cattle and sheep and all of those things. It was about getting the very presence of God. He knew his value. God insists to give himself to us. He defines blessedness in a very different way than we do. And yet we still pursue day after day the blessedness that the world says is ours and that will make us happy. God is not glib about suffering. Let me, let me say that clearly. It's not like he's, I'm not preaching that God wants you to suffer, he loves it. That's not what this says at all. God is trying to give us things that we could not get in any other way than going through the struggles that we find ourselves in. And so, I'll read you one last quote from this author about Lazarus. Because I want you to understand how much God identifies with your grief and your suffering. This is what it says. There are many levels to, this is about Jesus weeping when he hears Lazarus died. Okay? There are many levels to his grief. He wept because his friend was dead and he had loved him. Beneath that, he wept because as Mary and Martha both tactlessly reminded him, if he had only been present, Lazarus needn't have died but he wasn't present. 
Beneath that, he wept perhaps because if only God had been present then too, Lazarus needn't have died and he wasn't present. At least not in the way and to the degree to which he was needed. Then beneath that, it is as if his grief goes so deep that it is for the whole world that Jesus is weeping. And the tragedy of the human condition, which is to live in a world where again and again God is not present, at least not in the way and the, to the degree that man needs him. Jesus sheds his tears at the visible absence of God in the world where the good and bad alike go down to defeat and death. He sheds his tears at the audible silence of God at those moments, especially when a word from him would mean the difference between life or death, or at the deafness of men, which prevents their hearing him, the blindness of men, which prevents even Jesus himself as a man from seeing him to the extent that at the moment of all moments, when he needs him most, he cries out, Eloi, Eloi. This is a cry so dark of, uh, it's mentioned in all four of the evangelists. Only uh, no, it's uh, of all four evangelists, only two have the stomach to record it. And this is the important part. He is still a human mouth to speak Jesus. Jesus wept. We all weep because when man is good, even when he is Jesus, God makes himself scarce for reasons that no theodicy has ever fathomed. And I read that very long quote just to remind us. You could mention your tragedy right now. Death, betrayal, addiction, struggle. Mention all of them in your heart, in your head right now. You need to understand that Jesus, because he is a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness, he weeps at the tragedy of what you experience. He weeps. And from that tragedy, he makes himself present. His goal is to give himself. See, I don't think any of us goes, oh, I lost my job today. God is just here. Glory. I think we feel, where are you? Where are you? God, my, my spouse relapsed. I relapsed. Where are you? I thought you are my strength. I thought you were helping me. And from that darkness, from that difficulty, from that hopelessness, God is saying, I want to give you myself. So, the last thing I want to say, and I want you to remember this, and I'm going to pray and lead us into communion. We are not blessed we are not blessed because of an absence of suffering. We are blessed because of an abundance of grace that we have whether we're suffering or rejoicing. We are not blessed because there is an absence of suffering. We are blessed because there is an abundance of grace. That's why God is good when we go through hard times. That's why God is good all the time when the king takes them away into a foreign land. That's why God is still good when we've lost a job or a spouse or a loved one or a struggle. We fight our addictions. God is still good. Why? Because there is an abundance of grace for us.